Hi, everyone. This is Dr. David Blumke in Madison, Wisconsin. This is our first podcast edition for April. Our April edition has a lot of information that works well for podcasts. I will begin with an introduction on a short review. The title is Interstitial Lung Abnormality, Recognition and Perspectives. The authors are international experts on lung disease. Doctors Hadaboo and Huntinghack from Brigham and Women's in Boston, and Dr. David Lynch from National Jewish Medical in Denver. The topic is Advances in Understanding Interstitial Lung Disease. Let's start with the bottom line conclusion of the authors to see where we're going. To quote from the authors, it is time for radiologists to stop attributing interstitial lung abnormalities to benign age-related findings, as these changes have been clearly shown to be associated with increased mortality, increased risk for acute respiratory distress syndrome, and a decrease in pulmonary function over time. Thus, the premise of the article to bring to our attention new research that shows the importance of increased lung markings on CT scans of the chest that are often ignored. Next, a few details. First, the definition. What is an interstitial lung abnormality, or ILA? The definition is non-dependent changes in the lung affecting more than 5% of any lung zone that shows ground glass or reticular abnormalities. There can be cysts that are not due to emphysema, also honeycombing, traction bronchiectasis. A big challenge, making sure the ILAs are not due to dependent lung atelectasis. How do you distinguish dependent atelectasis so that you do not overcall ILA? One tip, atelectasis is often in both lungs. The ILA will be more irregular and asymmetric, more on one side than the other. Also, ILAs are more commonly found in patients more than 50 years old. How common are these? About 5% in non-smokers, 10% in smokers. Why do these occur? One idea is due to lung injury with lung tissue that does not heal properly. There is also a genetic abnormality. If you have an abnormality in a gene called mucin-5b, abbreviated MUC5b, you are more likely to have an interstitial lung abnormality. In the Framingham Heart Study, individuals with MUC5B gene variant had six times greater risk of ILA. And the MUC5B gene variant is fairly common, 20% of those of European descent. But just because you have the gene does not mean that you will express any disease. The big importance of the MUC5B gene is six-fold greater risk of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. IPF is a progressive disease resulting in severe disability in respiration. There are two medications now available to treat IPF to slow disease progression, but they cannot cure the disease. In summary, ILAs can have a genetic basis, they occur in older individuals, 5% of non-smokers, and up to 10% of smokers. But do they progress over time? Are these tiny lung changes really important? We have wonderful population-based cohort studies now, thousands of people intensively studied by investigators working with the NIH. By population-based study, I mean large groups of individuals who are not patients, normal individuals who are enrolled and followed over time. For almost 30 years now, The NIH has recognized that non-invasive imaging using ultrasound, CT, and MRI is critical to early disease detection in cohort studies. 
I became familiar with the work at Johns Hopkins of Dr. Nick Bryan in neuroradiology, analyzing thousands of MRI brain studies. And in the early 1990s, we read about 10 prostate MRIs of normal individuals in the Baltimore Longitudinal Study on Aging, sponsored by the NIH. Personally, I have worked with the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, or MESA study, for about 20 years using MRI to study heart disease. In these large cohorts, imaging is acquired at baseline along with lots of lab tests and genetic studies. Individuals are followed for 10 to 20 years or more. For the lungs, results from four big cohort studies with chest CT are available. People who had ILAs were more likely to later develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. In the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial, 20% of individuals who died of respiratory illness had a prior CT scan that showed ILAs. Only 1% of control subjects had an ILA. These large cohorts show that individuals with ILAs have more rapid decrease in lung function compared to those without ILA, and about 10 to 20% of ILAs progress on follow-up CT scan. We also know that people who have ILAs have more symptoms of coughing and shortness of breath. The ILAs can progress with the risk of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Now the problem, just because you see an ILA, you cannot determine if the patient has any symptoms or needs to be seen for clinically significant lung disease or referral to a pulmonologist. You may be reluctant to call ILA because of dependent lung atelectasis. The Fleischner Society is working on reporting guidelines that will help standardize our reports. Radiologists can be at the forefront of detecting subclinical disease. Perhaps the best documented example is coronary calcification on CT, although pretty much ignored for 20 years. CT for coronary calcification is now a billable examination. In the brain, we have UBOs, unidentified bright objects. In the heart muscle, we have tiny incidental scars in about 5% of patients found on MRIs. All of these supposed age-related changes are findings that you really do not want to have. With greater research and attention to detail, a tremendous amount of progress has been made in understanding the importance of interstitial lung abnormalities. The next article is part Star Trek New Imaging Technology. The topic is optoacoustic imaging. I discussed this on prior podcasts, but it's still quite new. To refresh your memories, we discussed optoacoustic imaging for breast and ovarian cancer. In both cases, a commercial product was evaluated that uses lasers to excite tissue and ultrasound to detect signal. The application was to image the amount of oxygenated versus deoxygenated blood in a tumor. Aggressive tumors are very metabolically active and extract more oxygen from the blood than normal tissue. As a result, there is more deoxyhemoglobin. This part of our podcast is about how all of that happens. The title of the research article is Real-Time Volumetric Assessment of the Human Carotid Artery, Handheld Multispectral Optoacoustic Tomography. The first author is Ivana Ivankovich. The senior author is Daniel Rosinski. The authors are from the Helmholtz Center Munich, Neuerberg, Germany. About a year ago, I started asking our top reviewers to explain our research articles in short editorials. My friends who used to be in academic radiology but were now in private practice had stopped reading the Gray Journal. 
even my colleagues in major academic centers at Hopkins and the NIH could no longer keep up with so many topics that we cover in the premier journal for our field, radiology. I even stated to the RSNA board of directors, I think sometimes only 10 or 20 people worldwide could understand some of our published research. We now have targeted editorials about most of our research articles, authors who are great communicators who can explain the meaning of the research. Some readers just look at the editorial alone, only going to the original article if more detail is needed. This month, we have an editorial that struck me as ideal. The author is Dr. Ruben Mesrick. Dr. Mesrick had a distinguished career at the University of Pennsylvania before taking over as chair of radiology at the University of Maryland. He is now retired as chair, but still on staff at Maryland, but his 40 years of experience in the field are invaluable. The title of his editorial is The Potential of Photoacoustic Techniques for Molecular Imaging. His editorial is so interesting, I'm going to read large parts of it verbatim. Note, Dr. Mesrick refers to photoacoustic imaging. Just remember, this is another term for optoacoustic imaging. Here is Dr. Mesrick's editorial. Light penetrates a considerable distance into the human body, and it is tantalizing to imagine using conventional optical techniques to image structure and function, at least in tissues close to the skin. The problem, it turns out, is that while absorption of light in the body is relatively weak, scattering of light is very strong. Detail is lost as light scatters in tissue to the extent that trying to image more than a few millimeters deep to the skin is like trying to look through a milky shower glass. Increasing the intensity of the light only serves to heat the tissue. The photoacoustic effect offers a way to take advantage of the ability of light to penetrate into the body and let us defeat light diffusion by using sound waves to see the penetrating light. The photoacoustic effect was discovered by Alexander Graham Bell in 1880 during his research to develop the telephone. By using a slotted spinning disc to pulse sunlight shining on a solid, he generated audible sound waves. He surmised, correctly as it turns out, that the effect was caused by transient heating, which caused slight expansion of the material and launched the sound waves. The idea remained a scientific curiosity until the development of the laser, especially the pulsed, tunable laser, when it became possible to shine bright and short bursts of light at almost any wavelength. The bursts of light create transient thermoelastic expansion, that is, sound waves, wherever they are absorbed, and by matching the optical wavelength to endogenous or exogenous material, it is possible to differentiate, that is to image, various light absorbers. The sound generated by very short bursts of light, on the order of a few nanoseconds or less, has a wide bandwidth, allowing a large choice of ultrasound center frequency and bandwidth. Clinical applications could use standard ultrasound detectors and frequency. The idea of photoacoustic imaging, then, is to illuminate tissue with light that will be absorbed by a desired endogenous or exogenous material. An ultrasound probe will then receive photoacoustic emissions whose strength will depend on the relative degree of light absorption. The spatial resolution of the system will be determined by the resolution of the ultrasound detector, which in turn depends on the choice of acoustic bandwidth and center frequency, but not by the diffusion of the light. Resolutions of better than one millimeter can be obtained at depths measured in sonometers, not millimeters, opening up entirely new regimens of optical imaging. 
The primary endogenous light-absorbing materials are oxyhemoglobin, deoxyhemoglobin, melanin, and lipids. There is an enormous catalog of exogenous materials or contrast agents that can be either injected into the bloodstream, such as methylene blue or indocyanine green, to name just two Food and Drug Administration-approved dyes, or attached to particles or antibodies that might enable identification of specific receptors. Several advantages accrue to the system by using the combination of sound and light to form an image. The first advantage is the flexibility with which the image can be created. Compared with conventional ultrasound, which images a point at a time, a line at a time, or even a plane at a time, the photoacoustic system can use the laser to illuminate an entire volume nearly instantaneously with sub-nanosecond time resolution, and every point in that volume will emit sound simultaneously that can all be resolved in parallel by using back projection or similar techniques as the sound flows to the detector. This can be repeated at rates of tens of cycles per second, creating near real-time volumetric images that can be dissected after the fact or in real-time in any arbitrary plane or projection. Motion and even flow can be easily appreciated and measured in any direction. Much more important, however, is that the images are a map of optical absorption in the tissue with the degree of absorption dependent on the wavelength of the light used. Varying the wavelength of the laser light, that is, performing multispectral illumination, changes the absorption and so enables in vivo, near real-time optical spectroscopy of in vivo human tissue. It is true molecular imaging. In this issue of radiology, Ivan Kovic et al. describe experiments to image the carotid bifurcation by using a photoacoustic imaging system that they designed and built. It features a spherical array of 256 piezoelectric ultrasound detectors, each with a center frequency of 4 MHz. An optical fiber bundle at the center of the ultrasound probe illuminated the tissue. The fiber bundle was coupled to a pulse laser. The device can image a 2 centimeter cube of tissue located approximately 1.5 centimeters deep to the skin with a resolution of 200 microns. Each volume is imaged with each laser pulse. The authors demonstrated good anatomic imaging of the carotid bifurcation as well as the distal and proximal portions of the carotid artery by manually scanning the probe and stitching the volumes to create the larger image. In truth, the value of these systems is not that they can create an anatomic image, as remarkable as the technology behind the images may be. A potentially greater significance is the possibility that the spectroscopic imaging might distinguish the vulnerable from the stable plaque. This would have potential to change medical management of the patient with a carotid artery lesion. It could also serve as a research tool enabling studies of the effects of different therapies on the constituents of a plaque in vivo. Plaque has already been characterized ex vivo, and the possibility that this can be potentially performed in vivo is exciting. Identification of regions of high lipid concentration would be useful to identify plaques that are likely to rupture, called vulnerable plaques. Dr. Mesrek so well said, it's a fascinating technology the original basis from experiments from Alexander Graham Bell, laser light penetrating into the body, causing thermal expansion, and creating sound that is picked up by a modified ultrasound probe. 
the laser can be tuned to different tissues, such as oxy or deoxyhemoglobin, or to injected contrast agents. The carotid artery is superficial and was the investigator's target of this new technology. Five days before I wrote this, a Hollywood actor named Luke Perry died at age 52 from a massive stroke. When announced on national news, I did not know the name Luke Perry. He was the star of a major television show called Beverly Hills 90210. I never saw the show, and I have no idea what it is about. But television stars dying at age 52 from massive strokes make the news. You do not have to be a physician to know the awful consequences of stroke. Even if the patient survives, a part of their humanity is forever removed. As a radiologist, it has probably occurred to you there is no longer any technical reason for undiagnosed carotid artery disease to cause massive stroke. Ultrasound is inexpensive and can easily find important carotid artery stenosis that is otherwise unpredictable by any other field of medicine. In one of my investigations at the NIH, we recruited healthy people from the community who had a high risk of cardiovascular disease. Based on hundreds of millions of dollars of research at the NIH, risk calculators add up age, family history, cholesterol, blood pressure, and so on. I have an app on my phone for that purpose. For my NIH research subjects, I looked at the MRI of the carotid arteries and at the CT of the coronary arteries. It became immediately obvious the presence of severe carotid disease in some people or severe coronary artery disease in others was completely unpredictable by these risk factor calculators. They work in aggregate for, say, 5,000 people. Maybe five will have a stroke in the next year, but they are pretty useless for you or me as an individual. By comparison, do a calcium score on CT or take a look at the carotid arteries with ultrasound and 10 minutes later, you know the answer. This is the problem I have. Luke Perry, or my neighbor, my barber, or my father's close friend, all of whom had massive strokes. An inexpensive carotid ultrasound would find all of them. I guess that's my editorial, along with Dr. Mesrick's comments on new developments in optoacoustic imaging. It will be interesting to see how this new tech develops. I had my coronary artery CT, but still need to visit the ultrasound department. Next, a topic on breast cancer in good news about the impact of technology. The title is Digital Breast Tomosynthesis, Radiologist Learning Curve. The first author is Diana Migliaretti from the Department of Public Health Sciences at University of California, Davis. The senior author is Carla Kurlikowski from the University of California, San Francisco. The research is the product of the Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium. This consortium is how I envision a lot more research in radiology should be done. This is a collaborative network of eight mammography registries linked to tumor and pathology registries supported by a statistical core. The Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium therefore represents a wide range of healthcare settings in the United States, both freestanding radiology practices and hospital-based services. The power of registries comes from the numbers the authors accessed a registry of more than 270,000 patients for this research. Breast tomosynthesis is very familiar now. Instead of frontal and lateral views of the breast tissue, a series of thin sections about one millimeter thick are obtained of the breast. As of January 2019, 35% of all accredited mammography units in the United States have breast tomosynthesis. Many insurers will cover the cost, although often with an additional copay. 
In the U.S., when a woman arrives at the breast imaging clinic, she may be asked if she wants to have tomosynthesis and to pay extra for it. To me, this is odd. Think about the large amount of research still ongoing about tomosynthesis. For example, the T-MIST study in the United States. T-MIST seeks to enroll 165,000 women by the year 2020. This means full results will not be available until one to two years after that. So the best researchers in the world do not know if tomosynthesis is better or not. But we ask the patient, a layperson, if she wants to have the new tomo technology and to pay extra, or does she prefer the regular mammogram? No literature provided, no discussion with the top researchers. How could any patient make an informed decision on the spot? Unfortunately, this is happening even at the top institutions in the United States. Until T-MIST is done, this research from the Breast Cancer Surveillance Consortium will provide some very solid answers. Purpose. Determine if there is a learning curve for interpretation of breast tomosynthesis and determine the cancer detection rates and recall rates compared to digital mammography. Methods. Evaluate breast tomosynthesis within two years of adoption compared to screening digital mammography. The cancer detection and recall rates were evaluated both for experienced specialists in mammography as well as general radiology readers. Both groups had to read more than the MQSA minimum of 960 mammograms over two years. Results. First, one key piece of background information. If you decide to interpret breast tomosynthesis, there is almost no barrier. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration regulation is that only eight hours of training is required if you are an MQSA qualified radiologist. I found a video course online for $389. This is not a high barrier, but you might wonder if this is enough training. First, the recall rate. After breast cancer screening, patients with abnormal mammograms are recalled for more views or ultrasound. Before adoption of tomosynthesis, the recall rate was 10.4%. After tomo adoption, the recall rate decreased to 9.4%. That means approximately 10% fewer women need to come back for additional diagnostic mammography or ultrasound. What about cancer detection? The cancer detection rate was unchanged before and after adoption of tomo, about 4.5 per 1,000 screening mammograms. What about a learning curve for breast tomosynthesis? There was none. Radiologists who had a total tomosynthesis volume of less than 400 studies had the same lower recall rates as radiologists who had experience with more than 1,600 tomo exams. What about breast imaging specialists versus general radiologists? Recall rates were approximately the same for both groups. Prior research indicated that recall rates were only lower for women with dense breast tissue. In this large study of more than 100,000 breast tomosynthesis studies, the recall rates were lower both for women with dense breast tissue and with non-dense breast tissue. Conclusion. This study was a prospective examination of clinical experience from 53 mammography facilities and should therefore be representative of real-world experience with tomosynthesis. Based on this result, I think you would be very likely to recommend breast tomosynthesis to your patients, your colleagues, to your spouse, or significant other. Cancer detection rates were not increased. This is contrary to studies in Europe, but the practice environment is different in the United States. But there was a 10% lower rate of recall for additional diagnostic mammo or ultrasound. The remaining question for patients to ask is to determine if the breast cancer screening facility has synthetic mammograms. 
Synthetic mammograms are generated from the tomosynthesis. No need for additional digital mammography. If the synthetic mammogram is not available, then a radiation dose is higher for tomosynthesis compared to digital mammography alone. Dr. Regina Hooley from Radiology at Yale School of Medicine wrote an elegant editorial about this new research, available in the April issue of Radiology. Our next topic is healthcare policy. The title is Improving Patient Experience in Radiology, Impact of a Multifaceted Intervention on National Ranking. The first author is Nina Kapoor. The senior author is Dr. Raman Khorasani. The research is from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Based on the title, you know the topic is ranking hospital services. Everything has a ranking now, not only on Amazon, but also physician and hospital rankings. I do not know how many people are like me. I doubt I've gone to a new restaurant in the last five years without checking the restaurant rating on some website. Well, it seems to work, so I keep checking. But what about healthcare? Should we check out hospital ratings and physician ratings as well? A while ago, I looked at some ratings of the best radiologists in our hospital and some of the average radiologists as well. Not surprising, the patient ratings were not terribly accurate. Despite this, the United States government has also gotten into the business of rating hospitals. In the U.S., this rating system is the outcome of a fundamental change of paying physicians. Instead of payment based on the number of radiology exams, the government will pay hospital systems based on factors related to quality of performance. Well, how do you measure quality of performance? One way is to look at patient surveys. How does that patient feel about the MRI department? If you are an interventional radiologist, did you have good bedside manner? As a physician, you might think that patient comments are superficial. On the other hand, you might also see problems with your healthcare facility. How can you incentivize hospital management to replace the 30-year-old chairs in the waiting room? Hospitals have limited budgets. Your MRI scanner is 10 years outdated, but lab medicine also needs a new mass spectrometer. At the NIH, I recall that we needed to spend $2 million to upgrade the patient call button in each hospital room. The call button to get the nurse was not working. Pretty basic. Hard to justify a new CT scanner if the nurse call button is not working. On the other hand, our radiology waiting room literally had 12-inch holes in the ceiling. Patients spoke to our radiology receptionist through a glass barrier, much like a bank teller. Our furniture was scattered and about 20 years old. Maybe a survey should not always be needed to tell hospital administrators that the facility is a wreck. But radiology managers can fix many problems immediately if they know there's an issue. At Brigham and Women's Hospital, some examples. The survey identified restrooms needed more cleaning. Patients had long delays. That may not be avoidable, but perhaps someone at the desk could tell the patient why the delay is happening or how long it might be. The waiting room may be too cold or too hot. One complaint was the patient felt bad about interrupting the receptionist's private conversation. These are examples of problems that can be identified on a survey. If identified, they can be rapidly fixed. Background. In 2015, a major federal program in the United States created financial incentives for better quality of care. In short, your reimbursement will be higher if your rating is higher. One category of performance is whether or not your facility collects and follows up on data about patient experience. Purpose. Determine if survey results in radiology can be used to improve national hospital ratings. Methods. 
Brigham and Women's Hospital has an outpatient network that covers 183 practices with 1,200 physicians. There are more than 500,000 imaging examinations per year. The dominant organization in the United States that creates hospital surveys is a company called Press Ganey Associates. You can pay Press Ganey to help you design a survey about your department. They have standardized questions for patient surveys. On a score of 1 to 5, a patient answers the survey and can write down comments. Press Ganey also classifies the comments as positive or negative using a natural language processing algorithm. Positive and negative comments were sent back to each of the radiology managers on a weekly basis. Small team meetings were also held where the results of the survey were presented to managers. In addition, all of the technologists and nurses were given ID badges that indicated the questions on the survey and checklists. For example, staff was reminded that there were questions about friendliness. On the checklist, staff was reminded to introduce themselves by their name and their role, such as, I am a technologist or I am a nurse. They were reminded to thank the patient when the outpatient procedure was done. Finally, a heat map of the entire radiology enterprise was presented to the radiology managers. If there was a high percentage of negative comments, that manager's area was coded in dark red. If there were few negative comments, that area was coded in dark green. Next, Press Ganey is not only paid to help administer and score the survey questions, they can also provide your department score relative to other radiology departments. They give you a raw score and your percentage. Brigham and Women's Radiology had a low rating at the start of the study, 35th percentile. Results. More than 20,000 surveys were collected over one year. About 20% of patients filled out a survey. When managers got a bad comment, such as restrooms being dirty, they could call management and get the bathrooms cleaned. Over a one-year period, the number of negative comments decreased slightly from 15% to 14% of comments. But the radiology department ranking soared from 35th percentile to the 50th percentile over the course of a year. Apparently, a little effort goes a long way on surveys. The number of negative comments related to the physical environment did not change. The older facilities at an urban hospital really cannot be changed in a year's time. But the ratings for staff interactions with patients increased. During the same period, the national ranking of the hospital did not change. The authors concluded that a large change in your national radiology ranking is possible by attention to the detail provided by the Press-Ganey survey. Conclusions. There are some disturbing conclusions about rankings here, perhaps the extra time, money, and effort that needs to be put into the goal of increasing or maintaining your national ranking. On the other hand, the benefit is patients who are more positive about your facility, the bathrooms are now clean, and your staff becomes more friendly. All we can really say, this is the reality we face and try to make the best of it. You will be lucky if you have a balanced hospital administration that understands the pitfalls of hospital surveys. Many of you are aware of the controversy involving Prescani surveys on pain management. There is concern that physicians prescribed more opioids as an indirect response to patient concerns to decrease their pain. Patient pain complaints could be reduced by prescribing more pain medications. Patients who were prescribed more opioids were found to have one-third fewer complaints on the survey questions about pain management. The concern became so severe that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, 
temporarily removed the questions about pain management from its quality score. More recent data has showed the lack of correlation between opioid prescription and the patient scored. This is still an ongoing area of national debate as we try to assign blame for 70,000 deaths in the United States per year or 130 people per day from opioid overdose. Surveys have pitfalls and may seem out of place in a hospital. How about that survey when you go through immigration and border control when entering another country? For me, I'm always certain to hit the green smiley face button. Now to conclude on a more standard topic. The title is First Line Diagnostic Evaluation with MRI of Children Suspected of Having Acute Appendicitis. The first author is Dr. Raza Mushtaq, the senior author, Dr. Uni Udayansakar. The study is from Medical Imaging Department at the University of Arizona. Background. The American College of Radiology recommends ultrasound as the initial imaging modality of choice for question of appendicitis. If ultrasound is indeterminate, CT or MRI can be used. Although used a great deal, CT has concerns about radiation, the need for oral and IV contrast. MRI does not have these disadvantages. Purpose. Evaluate the use of MRI as the first-line modality for the diagnosis of appendicitis. Methods. This was a retrospective, single-center study. The radiology department convinced the rest of the hospital to use MRI as the initial method for evaluating appendicitis for patients up to the age of 18 years. The MRI had nine different pulse sequences. Most sequences were two or three breath holds and took about one minute. The axial diffusion-weighted MRI was the longest, at about four minutes. No IV or oral contrast was used. The MRI reports were compared to surgery and medical records to determine the MRI accuracy. Results. 402 patients were evaluated over about three years. The average patient age was 13 years. About 60% were girls, 40% boys. The appendix was visualized on the MRI in 87% of cases. The sensitivity of MRI was 95 of 97 cases correctly diagnosed, 98%. For specificity, 302 of 305 cases were correctly diagnosed as negative for appendicitis. An important result was alternative diagnoses. Of 304 negative MRI cases, alternative diagnoses were present in 113 cases, or about one-third of patients. The most common alternative diagnosis was bowel inflammation of the colon or small bowel not involving the appendix. Other diagnoses included pyelonephritis and ruptured ovarian follicle, pancreatitis. Six patients even had a pneumonia. These sorts of alternative diagnoses are relatively straightforward to make on high-quality MRI examinations with state-of-the-art pulse sequences. Conclusions. Number one, the appendix was visualized by MRI very often, 87% of cases. Using ultrasound, Visualization of the appendix is reported to range from 24% to 74% at expert centers. Visualizing the appendix improves confidence and quality of the diagnosis. Number two, children frequently have abdominal pain caused by conditions that mimic appendicitis. In one-third of cases negative for appendicitis, MRI was able to find the cause of the abdominal pain. Number three, the authors did not compare ultrasound to MRI. 
Therefore, this is not a study that proves MRI should be used as the first-line diagnostic technique. Rather, the value of this research is to demonstrate how state-of-the-art MRI can be used for reliable diagnosis. I mention state-of-the-art MRI because new MRI scanners are very fast with only short breath holds. Also, fat suppression needs to be uniform over very large fields of view to avoid artifacts. Each generation of MRI scanner improves in this capacity. Number four, finally, the MRI can be readily interpreted. At the University of Arizona, the radiology residents took first call overnight and were trained to evaluate the MRI. This is a very nice look at the effectiveness of MRI for pediatric patients. If you are interested in implementing the method, we have an excellent editorial by Dr. Jonathan Dillman and Andrew Trout from radiology at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. These two radiologists are well known for their expertise in pediatric abdominal imaging. The disadvantages of MRI are also presented. MRI took an average of about 20 to 25 minutes, whereas CT takes only seconds. The time from ordering the MRI to a preliminary report was almost three hours. The authors emphasize that using MRI depends on the strengths of your staff and the equipment available in your facility. That concludes this week's articles. I hope these podcasts were helpful to you. Until next time, this is Dr. David Blumke for the journal Radiology. I hope you have a good rest of your week.